Now we're going to turn in God's word today to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 19. The Gospel of Matthew chapter 19. We're going to break into this chapter at the 16th verse. We're going to read through the remainder of the chapter, and then we're going to take as our text the last four verses. So as we read through this passage, when we come to those last four verses, take note especially of those that will be our text for today. Let us hear the word of the Lord. And behold, one came and said unto him, Good master, what good thing shall I do, that I may have eternal life? And he said unto him, Why callest thou me good? There is none good but one, that is God. But if thou wilt enter into life, keep the commandments. He saith unto him, Which? Jesus said, Thou shalt do no murder, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness, honor thy father and thy mother, and thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. The young man saith unto him, All these things have I kept from my youth up. What lack I yet? Jesus said unto him, If thou wilt be perfect, go and sell that thou hast, and give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. But when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Then said Jesus unto his disciples, Verily I say unto you, that a rich man shall hardly enter into the kingdom of heaven. And again I say unto you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. When his disciples heard it, they were exceedingly amazed, saying, Who then? Can be saved. But Jesus beheld them and said unto them, With men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Then answered Peter and said unto him, Behold, we have forsaken all and followed thee. What shall we have therefore? And Jesus said unto them, Verily I say unto you, that ye which have followed me in the regeneration, when the Son of Man shall sit in the throne of his glory, ye also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And every one that hath forsaken houses, or brethren, or sisters, or father, or mother, or wife, or children, or lands, for my name's sake, shall receive an hundredfold, and shall inherit everlasting life. But many that are first 
shall be last, and the last shall be first. Amen. It is the word of the living God, the inspired scriptures, and we trust the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his precious word for his name's sake. The man of whom we read at the beginning of this passage, we learn in the Gospel of Mark, is called the rich young ruler. And when the rich young ruler, as we read here, met the Lord Jesus Christ, he learned that not all of his wealth could gain him the entrance to heaven. It was, to say the least, a disconcerting discovery. The rich young ruler professed to have kept all the commandments that the Lord Jesus reviewed for him. But Jesus pointed out that there was one commandment he had not kept. And it was the foundation of all the others. The rich young ruler, we learn here, was a covetous man. He was unwilling to part with his possessions to follow Christ. Jesus said, go and sell whatever you have. And give the proceeds to the poor and come follow me. And when this rich young ruler heard those words, he went away in sorrow. For he realized he would have to surrender what was precious to him to have eternal life. The Lord Jesus said that only through the grace of God could anyone make such a sacrifice. With God, all things are possible. The contrast was between the possessions of this world and the glory of the world that is to come. When the disciples heard this conversation between the Lord and the rich young ruler, they compared their situation with his. None of the disciples had great possessions. Most were fishermen. One had been a tax collector. When they heard the Lord's call, they turned away from their livelihoods to follow the master. And they spent three years full time with him to serve him and to learn from him. They heard him speak about his kingdom. And in their temporal way of considering everything, they believed that he spoke of a literal earthly kingdom such as that which the Caesar ruled from Rome. The disciples came from humble stations in life. They speculated on the prospect of wielding wealth and power that they had never known. 
The rich young ruler went away sad because he had great possessions. So when the disciples considered themselves, they concluded that whatever he could not obtain, they must be in line to receive. So Peter raised the question recorded only here in the three accounts of this incident in the Synoptic Gospels, what shall we have, therefore? Speaking for the others, as he often did, Peter expressed the desire that their service to the Lord would lead to great possessions for them. That they were incapable of any thoughts that were not rooted in the material, appeared in their inability to understand the Lord's statements about the cross, about being lifted up on the cross. Because the statements that they heard the Lord make about the cross did not correspond to anything that they could conceive. And therefore, they did not comprehend them. When Jesus of Nazareth spoke to his disciples about the great rewards that those who followed him would receive, they began to calculate the amount of wealth they felt certain they deserved to receive. That was the way they thought. Some may think that Peter's question revealed a moment of weakness for him. And the other disciples. Instead, it was part of the pattern in which the disciples considered their situations as they understood them. So here this question from Peter and the Lord's reply, which they must have considered to be cryptic as well, underscored the attitude that is too prevalent in society and even more in the church of Jesus Christ. The disciples looked at what they imagined they had left behind to follow Christ. They thought it was a huge amount. They wondered about the rate of return. Because They saw following Christ at that time as an investment. They wanted to know about the interest rate. What would they gain? What shall we have, therefore? It's another way of expressing the question that seems to be on so many minds today. What do we get? And I want you to think upon that question with me today. Evangelical Christianity in the 21st century has bought into the premise of Peter's question to a great extent. Churches that focus on what people can get out of following Christ are expanding rapidly, while churches that avoid such self-absorption struggle to keep traction in the world. We live in the age of Joel Osteen and all of his imitators. Many have bought into the idea that attending church is a decision that rests on what people can get out of the experience. 
What do we get? People want to know. If they attend a certain church that promises to give them entertainment and to send them away feeling warm inside, they're happy to attend because it's all about what they get out of it. Then there are others who I class as opportunists. They're looking for something the church can do for them in the advancement of their careers. Many years ago, we stayed in the home of a couple, and one of the members of that household was involved in selling insurance. And in the context of their association with the church, tended to view the people in the church as potential clients. There are others who have come to our church here over the years who have thought that they saw an opportunity to be involved directly in the service of the ministry. So there are all kinds of ways that people view attending the church. When some people think about believing in Christ, they wonder, or at least it appears that they wonder, what they're going to get, what they get out of it. Is belief in Christ going to make it easier for them to pay their bills? Is it going to make their family problems disappear? Is it going to lead to a trip to an exotic destination? Is it going to cure their loneliness? What do they get? This exchange in our text underscores the truth that the rewards for the Lord's people are not so much in this world as they are in the regeneration of which Jesus spoke when Christ shall sit on the throne of his glory. And when we come to our text today, there are just two main ideas that I want you to consider with me. And the first of the two is the meaning of sacrifice. The meaning of sacrifice. Peter's question came after the Lord instructed them in the difficulty that rich people find in trusting Christ. Jesus said, as we read in verses 23 and 24, A rich man shall hardly enter into the kingdom of heaven. Again, I say unto you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. It would seem to be impossible. And the disciples thought that's what it was. But Peter's question was not involved so much with what the Lord said on that point as it was with what Peter thought was the situation of the disciples. The rich young ruler did not want to leave all his possessions. So he went away sorrowful, or as we read elsewhere, grieved. He was grieved. There's an element even of anger there. It wasn't just a matter of regret. He went away sorrowful. He went away grieved. He went away angry. He went away frustrated. 
That was his attitude. Peter said the disciples were willing to give up everything. And that they had surrendered everything. We have left all. But had they surrendered everything? You see, the disciples, and it's not an accident that this situation prevails, the disciples are like us. They tend to magnify the significance of their sacrifice. We have forsaken all, Peter said. Now, they gave up a lot. To follow Jesus of Nazareth. When Jesus called to them to follow him, they gave up a lot. They gave up their livelihoods. In the case of at least four of the disciples, they left their occupations as fishermen. Let us turn back to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew 4 and verse 18. And Jesus, walking by the sea of Galilee, saw two brethren, Simon called Peter, and Andrew his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishers. And he saith unto them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And they straightway left their nets and followed him. And going on from thence, he saw two other brethren, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, in a ship with Zebedee their father, mending their nets. And he called them. And they immediately left the ship and their father and followed him. Whether James and John knew Peter and Andrew before is not clear, although it seems very likely that they did. It was not a large community, and those who were involved in this occupation were used to trying to help each other out. But nevertheless, when Jesus said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men, they left their nets. They left their occupation. They left their means of livelihood. There was a similar experience for another of the disciples as we find it in Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9. And verse 9. And as Jesus passed forth from thence, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the receipt of custom. And he saith unto him, Follow me. And he arose and followed him. Here was another sacrifice, another surrender of a means of livelihood. So Peter said, we, we've, we have forsaken all. But did they really leave it all behind? Didn't the experience of Peter and some of the other disciples after the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus show that they always looked to what they had left as 
their ace in the hole, something that they were going to get back to if they had to. We find that in John's Gospel, chapter 21, John chapter 21, and verse 3. We read in verse 2 of a number of the disciples who were gathered together. They were at Galilee, familiar territory for them. Simon Peter saith unto them in verse 3, I go a fishing. They say unto him, We also go with thee. They went forth and entered into a ship immediately, and that night they caught nothing. They hadn't given it up completely. If the necessity were there, they could go back to it. You see, we tend to magnify what we have given up to follow Christ. Was there sacrifice in what the disciples did? Undoubtedly. It was not an easy thing. But was the sacrifice as great as Peter made it out to be? We have left all. In no way. They magnified their sacrifice and professed also that they made those sacrifices to follow the Savior. They professed that they would stay by him no matter what happened. But shortly afterward, Peter denied that he knew the Savior at all. After spending three years with him. He said, I don't even know who he is. And Judas Iscariot, who also spent three years with Jesus, betrayed Jesus into the hands of the Jewish leaders. How closely did they follow the Savior then? Peter asserted the self-interest of the disciples. What shall we have, therefore? What do we get? What will be our reward for all that we have given up for you? There are people today in charismatic circles who consider Christianity as the source of wealth and power and fame. There is something in following Christ for the people of God. The Bible does speak of rewards. But the prize that the Lord Jesus Christ sought was the redemption of his people. The meaning of sacrifice, as Peter and the disciples were to learn, is that we seek nothing in exchange. We don't bring our gifts to God and say, well, now I wonder what we're going to get back from the church out of those gifts. The meaning of offering, the meaning of sacrifice is that there is nothing being negotiated. Peter wanted to know, what do we get? But now we come to the other consideration in our text And that is the message of the prize. Because the Lord Jesus, in speaking to these disciples, pointed their attention 
away from themselves, away from the present world, to the glory that awaited them. That is, he urged them to adopt as their motivation for their lives the interest of Christ's kingdom over all. They wanted to get something tangible out of it. But Jesus said they needed to be concerned instead with that which exalts the Son of God. There would be, he said to them, a great reward. There would be a great prize. But it would not be in the context of money or earthly influence and power. It would be in the context of the son's rule over his kingdom. In the words of verse 29 in our text, the Lord underscored real sacrifice. Everyone that hath forsaken houses or brethren or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my name's sake. That's the sacrifice. Did the disciples leave their families behind forever? Did they surrender everything that they owned? We find no record of it. The Lord told them, though, that they were going to receive far more than they sacrificed. In other words, the message to them was, there is no sacrifice that is so great that it will overweigh the reward that is going to come. The reward they were going to receive, Jesus said, was beyond the scope of this life. It would be in the context of God's glory. We come to the Apostle Paul. At the very end of his life, He was going to be executed for the cause of the gospel. Here's the ultimate sacrifice. He spoke of the prize he expected to receive. 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 7. I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day. And not to me only, but unto all them also that love his appearing. The crown of righteousness. That's the prize. That's the reward. In Philippians chapter 3, Philippians chapter 3, and 
And verse 13. Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind, that is, all the things that you imagine you've given up to serve the Lord, forgetting those things which are behind, and reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Now how do you do it? It's well for us to read those words, and it's well for me to exhort you according to those words, but how do you do it? Well, in that same epistle to the Philippians... Jesus called his disciples to the experience Paul described. Philippians chapter 2 this time. And verse 5. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. It's an imperative who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. That is, here's the way to press toward the mark. Let the mind of Christ be in you, and lest you have any question about the meaning of that exhortation Paul gives it to you here this is what Christ did Christ is God but he did not regard his identification as God as something he had to grasp at and try to maintain he made himself of no reputation He took upon him the form of a servant. That was his calling. And Jesus, through Paul, is saying to the Philippians, let this same mind be in you. This is how you will follow the Lord. The exaltation of the Savior is the pattern of, For all who have the mind of Christ controlling their lives. So the question is not, what do we get? No, what do we get? The question is, what do we gain for him? How will we promote Christ's glory? As I have often said, we cannot add anything to Christ's glory. To glorify God is not to give him more glory than he already has. But to glorify God is to promote Christ's glory. To proclaim the gospel. Like the angels of whom we read in the Revelation flying through the heavens with the everlasting gospel, when we proclaim the gospel, we promote the glory of Christ. 
And we do so knowing that the Lord will take care of his people. He will take care of his people. And the followers of Christ hearing the Lord's commitment to care for them, to be with them, desire that above everything else, he should have the preeminence in the church. And to say that we desire Christ to have the preeminence is not to just ascribe to some sentiment. It is to say we are not going to tolerate anything in the church that makes Christ less than who he is. He is to have the preeminence. And whenever the word of Christ goes forth from this pulpit or any other pulpit that is faithful to the proclamation of the gospel, the great desire, the great motivation should be that Christ should have the preeminence. May the Lord give us grace not to ask what do we get, but how may we promote the glory of Christ. Let us bow together in prayer. Our gracious Father and our eternal God, we thank thee for thy holy word that comes to our hearts again today. We thank thee, Father, for the way in which thy word speaks to us, and we rejoice in the message of Christ. Oh, how we thank thee for Christ's assurance that there will be a prize, and the encouragement for us to press toward the mark for that prize. We thank thee for Paul's testimony that he could say at the end of it all that there was laid up for him a crown of righteousness. Oh, Father, we pray, give us that great desire to exalt the Savior. Grant that in every aspect of our service unto him in the church, he will have the preeminence, for he alone is worthy of our praise, our adoration, our sacrifice, and our service. So bless thy word to every heart today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.